with me in your Bibles to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. And when you get there, if you're able, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The grass withers our fates, but the word of our God will stand forever. Bless God. This is your very word. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see wonders in you. God, I pray that you would reveal to us things that we cannot see on our own. God, we need you. We need your spirit. And I pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit upon us right now. God, would you fill this place with your presence. And I pray, God, that you would help us know that we are standing on holy ground. Because, God, you are here. Help us to know it. And I pray, God, this morning that you would give us ears to hear. God, open our ears that we might hear your voice. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see. And having seen and heard, we might be changed. God, I pray for your help for me. Help me, God, to proclaim your truth. Help me, God. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Bend me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in Matthew 13, Jesus gives us seven parables. Remember that parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. They're like short stories that give us a window into spiritual truth. And the parables in this chapter are intended to teach us about the kingdom of heaven, the nature of the kingdom, and what the kingdom of God is like. And when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the realm in which God's rule and reign is experienced. Remember that the kingdom of heaven, guys, isn't something out there. It's not a place. You can't get to a piece of real estate and say, here's the kingdom. No, the kingdom of heaven, biblically speaking, 
is wherever God is king, and the king's will is done. And wherever he reigns, you know what happens? Things are restored to the way they were meant to be. In other words, when Jesus is king, what's wrong is made right. What's broken is mended. What's fallen is restored. That's the effect of his reign. And that's the good news he came to proclaim. But what Jesus tells us over and over again is that the kingdom of God doesn't come in the way we expect it to. That is, it's not flashy. It's not political. It's not about armies. No, it's quite the opposite. Jesus says the kingdom of God in this present age comes unseen in human hearts. Unseen in human hearts. And so he compares it to seeds that are sown. That some reject because their hearts are hard, while others, like good soil, receive it and bear fruit. Or the kingdom is like good seed that is sown among weeds, and you can't always tell which is which until the last day when they'll be separated. Or the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which is the tiniest of seeds, but over time it grows into the biggest, most massive tree. Or it's like leaven that you work into dough. And it seems so insignificant. It seems like it's nothing. And yet, and you see its pervasive effect causing the whole thing to rise. Jesus says, that's what the kingdom is like. It's not all that impressive at first. And it doesn't seem to be doing much of anything. And yet, it's working. It's growing. To where it eventually takes over and it changes everything. Michael Wilkins, my professor, my pro- former professor at New At Talbot, my New Testament professor said, Jesus in these parables is teaching his followers what it means to be clandestine kingdom disciples. I love that. Clandestine kingdom disciples. You see, God's kingdom in the present age is a clandestine kingdom. And what does clandestine mean? It means to be secretive, right? It means to be concealed. That's the word that we use to describe secret agents or spies where you are a clandestine kingdom disciple and what that means is that in this age the kingdom of god exists in hidden form there's a hiddenness to it and we're like secret agents of that kingdom living in this world that is presently ruled by the prince of darkness and we have been given a mission to spread the gospel the message of god's hope and light and salvation to those who are living in darkness. C.S. Lewis put it like this. Christianity is a story of how God, the rightful king, has landed, you might say, in disguise and is calling all of us to be part of his great campaign of sabotage. That is dope. We are part of God's great campaign of sabotage to bring light and truth righteousness and justice to a world marked by wickedness and an injustice and hatred and by the power of the spirit in us and by the power of god's word we upend this present darkness and we bring godly sabotage until the time when the rightful king returns to establish his eternal reign now the two parables that we are focusing on today speak of the worth of the kingdom the great worth, the value 
of the kingdom. Many things Jesus is wanting us to get here, which happens to be the two shortest parables in the entire Bible, is that the kingdom of heaven is something that is of inestimable value. It's priceless. But just saying that isn't very exciting, is it? The kingdom of God is really valuable. No, Jesus is a master teacher. And he says, you know what it's like? It's like finding treasure. Don't you just love how vivid that is? Doesn't that just instantly fill your mind with imagery? Who doesn't want to find treasure, right? There's a bit of pirate in all of us. I just wrote about Andy Fields, a businessman from Tiverton, England, who bought five sketches for five bucks at a garage sale in Las Vegas. He didn't think much of them until he discovered on the back of a sketch a signature that read Andy Warhol. It turns out that the sketches belonged to the seller's aunt who used to babysit Andy Warhol back in the day. The sketches were purchased that were purchased for a measly five bucks were valued at over two million dollars. He found treasure. Speaking of finding treasure, you ever see those guys at the beach that are walking around like this? You know what I'm talking about, right? He's walking around with headphones connected to a metal detector, and he's at the beach for a very different reason than everyone else there. And I'm going to be honest, I've always found them to be a bit odd. You know what I'm talking about? Now, if you are one of those people, no offense, okay? Even though I just offended you. But everyone is at the beach enjoying the sun, the sand, the water, and you got this guy walking around going beep, beep, beep. Well, I heard a story about a man named Terry Herbert, who in 2009 was doing just that in a farmland close to his home with his 14-year-old metal detector, and he found, get this, a chest full of gold and silver from the 7th century, enough to fill 244 bags that was valued at over $5.3 million. I will never make fun of those people ever again. I'm going to ask for, for one for Christmas. Now, in Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for people to hide things out in the field. Because think about it, they didn't have banks like we do. They didn't have safe deposit boxes. And if you lived in a place like Israel, Palestine, where armies were constantly invading, you're not going to just sit on all that stuff while, while you're, you're waiting for the next invasion. And so what you did was you went out to a field and you buried it. You buried your money, you buried your valuables, and you covered it back up so that you can retrieve it at a later time. Now, what would often happen is that the person who did that would die. They would die in an accident. They would die of old age. They would die of this, whatever. They would die. And years would go by, and no one would know that there was treasure hidden in that field. Now, the man in our story who we presume is poor is out in the field one day when he uncovers treasure. He can't believe what he has stumbled upon, what he has found. And so he looks around to see if anyone else sees what he is seeing. And when he realizes that there's no one else around, he quickly covers it back up and walks away, acting like he didn't see anything. He struggles to contain his excitement as he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. His family and friends ask him, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm going to buy that field over there. 
that field, why are you wanting to buy that worthless field? Oh, no particular reason, he says, as he smiles to himself. Now, in the second parable, the main character is not some poor individual. He's a wealthy merchant. And unlike the first guy, this guy doesn't stumble on treasure accidentally. No, he has been in search of treasure. He looks for fine pearls for a living. By the way, pearls were the most ancient jewels in the, in the ancient world because they were so rare. But this merchant one day finds a pearl that was unlike anything he had, he had ever seen. It is of such exquisite beauty and quality that it, he's got to have it, and so he goes and sells all his other pearls, and not just his pearls. He sells his house, his business, his land. He sells every, he liquidates everything he has to buy that pearl. But two men, one poor, one wealthy, one who stumbles on treasure accidentally and one who is obsessed with it. But they both encounter something of such great worth that it makes everything else in their lives look worthless by comparison. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl that puts all other pearls to shame. And the question that confronts us at this point is, is that how we think of the kingdom of heaven? Is that how we think of Christ and all that it means to be found in him? Do we see Jesus the way these men saw the treasure and the pearl? You know, I thought this week, if people today were to write their own parable of what the kingdom of God was like, what would they say? What would they compare the kingdom of heaven to? I figure some would say something like, the kingdom of heaven is like a person who found this really long list of things he needed to do for God to not be mad at them. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found hidden in a field a ball and chain that he got shackled to that kept him from having fun the rest of his life, but he needs to wear it if he doesn't want to go to hell. I imagine many today would say something like that. But that is such a far cry from the picture Jesus paints for us. He says, you know what the kingdom is like? It's like the person who won Powerball. You guys hear about this? One person in Altadena won Powerball. Ray, is that you? <laughs> Did you win it and you're just not telling us? <laughs> forget, forget the prayer walk. We got a building. But one person, guys, one person in the whole nation won Powerball, $2.04 billion. His or her life will never be the same again. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Or it's like a merchant who finds the mother of all pearls, the only one like it on earth. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And this is where I want to address a problem that I see all across or all around me. A problem that has penetrated the walls of evangelical churches all across America. 
It's a problem that I believe is single-handedly responsible for sucking the joy, the passion, the life out of countless number of Christians. A problem that results in the going through the motions kind of Christian walk that seems so prevalent and so normal in the church today. My guess is that you know the type of Christianity I'm talking about. Lives that maintain a semblance of religious routine. You know, church on Sundays, small group on Wednesdays. An annual retreat, which usually means an annual recommitment. Lives that are religious, but lives that aren't characterized by the kind of authentic joy and life and power and passion that Jesus promised to those who follow him. And whatever joy they do manage to experience is more likely the result of some superficial secular pleasure. Like the Lakers finally winning a game. Whenever that's going to be, they are awful. Or your favorite pair of jeans going on sale. Or getting that Christmas bonus at work. It's more of that stuff than the product of a deep and abiding walk with God. And it doesn't take a pastor, it doesn't take a theologian to see that there's something wrong, there's something inauthentic about such a life. Maybe that brings to mind someone you know. And maybe that someone is you. So what is it? Guys, what is it? What is the problem? What's responsible for producing this kind of Christianity that, that, it's, that seems so opposite of the one that we find in Scripture where people are just so enraptured and enamored with God that they're willing to give up everything to have Him? Now, I believe the problem is multifaceted, but I believe much of it comes down to this. I believe it comes down to a failure to understand and live in the gospel. A failure to understand and live in the gospel. And here's why I'm saying this. When we don't understand what the gospel is and why it's central to our life in God, we get religious. That's the natural outcome, always, always. We get religious. Why? Here's why. And I need you to listen carefully here, okay? I'm about to go into some of the stuff that I've been learning at school. But the reason we get religious is because we have an innate need to cover up our badness. More specifically, to cover up our guilt and shame. See, we know that there's something wrong with us. Every single one of us knows that. Every single one of us knows that something is wrong with me on the inside. I'm broken. We know that. And this is a universal human condition that stems from something called original sin. Which means that you and I, we were all born in sin. And that sin has distorted all of our capacities. So we all have this innate sense of shame and guilt that I'm broken, that I'm bad. So what do we do? We do what the first man and woman did, cover up and hide. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and they felt the pains of shame and guilt, 
They tried to cover up and hide their badness. And we've been doing that ever since. Our natural tendency as humans is to cover up our shame and hide from our guilt. Because it makes us feel bad and we don't want to feel bad. And so what do we do? We try to be good. We try to be moral so that I and others and God don't see my badness and see instead me as acceptable. Truth is, we use spirituality all the time to cover up deep feelings of shame and to hide from our sense of guilt and failure, the guilt and failure that haunts us. So we become religious. We start emphasizing what we do for God and start focusing on our own performance where the emphasis is placed on conforming ourselves to the religious life. All that we as Christians are supposed to do and not do. We go to church on Sundays. We join a small group. We give our tithe. We give our offering. We start serving. We have our quiet times. We read our Bibles. We spend time in prayer. We do all these things on the positive side. Now on the negative side, we stop partying. We stop drinking, smoking, having sex. We stop cussing, lying, and gossiping. At least we try to because these are all things Christians shouldn't be doing. And so the Christian life consists primarily of adhering to a set of rules and conforming ourselves to what we perceive to be the good Christian life. That's what happens when the gospel is missing from our lives. We start putting all the emphasis where? On our behavior. On behavior modification where we we're doing all the right things, but the heart is disengaged. We're doing all the things that we think we should be doing, and yet the heart is disengaged. Disengaged from the one that we're supposed to be doing all this for. And that's when you get the kind of Christianity that is so prevalent today. The kind that has people just going through the motions with no real joy and no real passion for God. This is what Paul Tripp calls rose-stapled Christianity. He says some people in church are like rose bushes that have no flower or have dried up flowers. So what do they do? They go down to the floors and buy a dozen roses and then staple them to the dead branches. And from a distance, it looks good. From a distance, it looks very much alive, but when you get close, you see that the roses have just been stapled on. What an accurate description of so many in our churches today. Guys, we have substituted all kinds of cosmetic changes for real change. And we do this all the time. And we're constantly telling people, hey, you got to beef up your devotions. You got to read your Bible more. You got to pray. You got to pray more mountain moving prayers. Hey, you got to get more serious about your sin. You got to go on more mission trips. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for all of that. that. All of that is good. But when that becomes the focus, hear me. When that becomes the focus, when we use spirituality to hide from the truth of who we really are, then all we're doing is producing external changes to a heart that's not even engaged with God. 
a heart that doesn't really love God. And that goes against everything this book says about what it means to be Christian. The Bible says that Christianity that is not primarily focused on loving God is not Christianity. It's not. No matter how righteous or religious their behavior is, because being a Christian is not about following a bunch of rules. Please hear me. Hear me, especially if you are not a follower of Jesus. Christianity is not giving up what you love in the world so that you do what you hate in God. That is so not what this is about. Christianity is not painfully giving up our worldly pleasures and struggling to follow undesirable commands. No, you know what it means to be a Christian? It means that you found treasure. It means that you found treasure. It's about coming to Christ as the bread of life who satisfies the hunger of our souls, the living water who quenches our thirst for joy and peace, hope, meaning, life. You see, true Christianity, true Christianity is obedience to God for no other reason than that you delight in God. You obey not to get something from him, but to get him, to get more of him. False religion is when people do things to get something from God, like blessings and rewards and escape from judgment. But when God himself is your reward, when he himself is your blessing, when, when you want God more than you want to escape hell, that's when obedience becomes joy. And guys, here's why religious change doesn't work. It doesn't address what's at the core of the problem. And you know what's at the core of our problem? The core of the problem is that our hearts love other things. Our hearts love other things. Our hearts place a greater weight on things other than God. And that's what sin has done. It has disordered our desires. Paul says it like this in Romans 1.25 when he's describing humanity's sin problem. He says they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served a creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. The Bible says the fundamental problem with humanity is that we have taken our worship off of God and we have placed it on his stuff. And we have exchanged the truth of God. The truth that God alone is worthy of our heart's devotion. And we have, we have, we have placed it on the stuff. And we have convinced ourselves that the things that God has made is better than the one who made it. And this is what the Bible calls idolatry. And what's an idol? An idol is anything that isn't God that we place in the that we put in the place of God as a thing that we look to for life and happiness. Let me say that again. It's anything in our lives, anything can be an idol that we put in the place that only God deserves to be, that we look to for life and happiness. And, idol and idolatry isn't just one sin among others. No, it's the driving force behind all our sins. Every time you and I sin, there's an idol behind it. Or as Tim Keller says, it's the sin behind the sin. 
And we see an example of this in the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember that? And what does Jesus say to the man in response? He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not lie, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And the guy goes, I've been doing that from my childhood. I've kept them all, Jesus. I've been doing all of that from my youth. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're right. You have been doing all these things. But there's one thing you still lack. Go sell all that you have. And you give that money to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then you come and follow me. What is Jesus doing here with that question? He is exposing what was at the center of this man's heart. He was religious. Deeply religious. But his heart didn't belong to God. God had his behavior, but money had his heart. God had his duty, but money had his desire, and Jesus exposes that. He exposes his idol. We are then told that the man got very sad. He just got sad, and he walks away from the Lord. He turns, and he walks away from Jesus because he wasn't willing to do that. He wasn't willing to lay down his idol. And that's when Peter, good old Peter, comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what about us? We actually left everything to follow you, so what, what's in it for us? And Jesus says to Peter, there's nothing that you have given up that God will not reward you for, both in this life and in the life to come. And that's what Jesus was wanting this man to get. You see, Jesus wasn't trying to strip this man of pleasure. He was trying to satisfy him with true treasure. Don't miss this, because that's what this whole point is about. Jesus wasn't trying to make him penniless and poor. He was calling him to let go of the trinkets of the world. Because there was real treasure to be gained in him. And Mark tells us in his account of the story that Jesus looked at the man. He looked at him and he loved him. He loved him. And when he told him to go sell all that he had, he didn't say it because he hated him. He said it because he loved him, because he wanted what's best for him. And that is what's so tragic about this story, that the, that the very thing that this man was looking to money to provide, life and happiness, was the very thing that stood in the way of true life and true happiness. Now, in the very next chapter, Jesus has another encounter with a rich man in Luke 19. His name was Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wealthy tax collector, meaning he stole from his own people to give to the Romans and to lie in his own pockets. And when he chose to be a tax tax collector in that day, he kissed everything goodbye. Your family, your reputation, your place inside of your integrity, he sacrificed everything for the sake of money. And that was Zacchaeus. But one day Zacchaeus hears that Jesus was coming through town, and so he climbs up a tree to see him. And you know the story. As Jesus passes by, he spots him and says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. Come down, because I'm going to stay at your place today. And that's when the people start muttering, what, is he serious? 
He's going to stay at his house. Because in that day, when you went over to someone's house and shared a meal with that person, it was a sign of fellowship. It was a sign of acceptance. And the people are shocked that Jesus would accept a sinner like Zacchaeus. And this is where we see the difference between gospel and religion. Jesus says, I accept you, Zacchaeus, before he does anything. Now, every other religion in the world would have said, here's what you need to do, Zacchaeus, to be accepted by God, but not Jesus. He says, salvation has come to your house today, and that is why you will change. And that's exactly what we see. When Zacchaeus experiences the love and acceptance of Jesus, what happens? His life is transformed. His life gets upended. His entire value system gets remade. And he says, Lord, I'm going to give half of all that I have to the poor. And whoever I stole from, I'm going to repay them four times what I cheated them of. And Jesus told him to do none of these things. The money lost its grip on Zacchaeus. Why? Because he found treasure. Because he found true treasure. He found in Jesus all that he had been looking to money to give. And that's when he starts giving it all away. And this is where we get to the heart of the gospel. What makes the gospel good news, listen to me. What makes the gospel good news is that you are loved and accepted not because of you, but because of God. Not because of what you do, but because of what he has done. That's it. The gospel says you are loved and accepted by God, not on the basis of your performance, but on the basis of Christ's performance on your behalf. It really is that simple and that profound. And this is why this is so counterintuitive for us. In fact, this is the hardest thing for people to accept. Why? Because our world doesn't operate this way. Moreover, we weren't parented this way. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of us were raised by well-meaning parents, moms and dads, who raised us in love. But parents who parented us in guilt and shame. Because the parents themselves don't know what it's like to deal with their own badness in the context of love, they can't do that with their kids. And they can't handle them in their badness. So what does the child do? He or she grows up thinking, I can't show my bad. No one wants to see my bad, and so they learn to cover up and hide in their badness. And they start operating under a false self as they say to themselves, I've got to be good. I have to be good because that's when I'm going to be accepted and loved. That thing gets projected onto our relationship with God. We think that we can only bring the good before God since he doesn't want to know the bad that's in my heart. And so we work and we try to be good because we think that's what makes us acceptable to God. And this is why so many of us are so insecure in our relationship with God. Why we're constantly feeling guilty for not measuring up and why we're constantly telling ourselves to be better, to, to try harder. Because we believe in our hearts that God's love for us is based on how good of a person we are. But I'm here to tell you that that is not Christianity. 
That is not the gospel. What makes the gospel so good is that Jesus has changed everything. Everything. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel right there. And this is what theologians refer to as God's double imputation, and it's critical that you understand this. What that means is that all my sins, past, present, future, all my sins was imputed or attributed to Christ as he hung on that cross. That's why Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because he took my condemnation for me. All of it. He took on the wrath of God for sin to the very last, last drop. It is finished. But that's just the first part. Not only are my sins imputed to Christ, but all of Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. And this is an alien righteousness. That is, I'm clothed with the righteousness of another. A righteousness that is outside of my own. And you know what that means? That means when God looks at me, he literally sees me as blameless. I do not bear in the slightest the weight and the guilt of my sin. And I can no more be rejected by God as Christ can be rejected by God. And God can no more accept me as Christ can be more accepted by God because he deals with me not according to what kind of week I had, but according to what kind of life Christ lived. This is why Hebrews 4.16 tells us to come into God's presence with what? Boldness and confidence. Boldness and confidence. Not because you've had a good week. Not because you perform better or sin less. But because God sees you and welcomes you and beckons you and deals with you on one basis. The righteousness of his son. And just think about how this deals with our guilt and our shame. Listen, our guilt is removed when we know that we are forgiven. Fully forgiven. And you know what that does? It makes us come out of hiding. I don't have to hide anymore. I don't have to hide because I'm forgiven. And I can live my life. I can live and walk in the light. Even when, even when my own heart condemns me. And 1 John 3, 20 says there are times when our own hearts condemn us. You know what I'm talking about? There are times when our own hearts condemn us. But when you know what John says? But God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our hearts. So in those times when my own heart is condemning me, oh man, I can, I can still know, I can know even then that I am forgiven before God. And I don't have to hide. How about shame? Shame is removed when I, when I know that I'm accepted. When I know that I am fully known. That God knows all about me. He, he sees my badness. He sees my junk. He sees my mess. He sees it all. And yet he accepts me fully and loves me perfectly. And that's when shame disappears. And that's when I can stop trying to cover it up because I'm fully accepted in Christ. 
John Coe, my wife's favorite professor at Talbot, has said this. No amount of effort can ever relieve us of our, of our burden of shame and guilt except Christ. The Christian life is not fundamentally about being moral in itself or being a good boy or girl. It is not fundamentally about obedience to a set of principles. It is not fundamentally about doing spiritual disciplines. No, this is a life, in fact, that we have been saved from. A life of trying to be good and pleasing to God and the power of the self as a way to deal with our guilt and shame. Rather, the Christian life is about Christ and what Christ has done and then about our life in Christ and to open to what he has done for us. Do you hear that? The Christian life at its core is about Christ and what Christ has done, not about what we are to do. It is not a list of behaviors to be adopted into our lives. No, it's an announcement to be believed in our hearts. Let me say that again. It is not a list of behaviors to be adopted into our lives. It's a pronouncement to be believed in our hearts. In fact, in John chapter 6, we see the crowds asking Jesus, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And the Lord responds, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So the people ask Jesus what they must do to live a life that pleases God, that honors God. And Jesus says, the work that God requires is to believe. Believe. To believe in the one that he has sent and to believe what God has done for them in his son. And it is in believing that we are set free. It's in believing that we are set free from our guilt and our shame. It's in believing that we are set free from the performance treadmill. Where we're constantly running, constantly striving, but getting nowhere. That's the truth that frees us to live a life that pleases God. Where we obey, not so that I can gain his acceptance, but because it's already mine. Where I love God genuinely from the heart, because I've come to know his love for me. Abraham Lincoln one day went to a slave market to see for himself the injustice of slavery. That's when he saw a young woman be brought out. Her face registered her anger. Her bruised body gave evidence of mistreatment. And as the men examined her, her eyes flashed with hostility. Then the bidding for ownership began. One man after another bid to make her his property. But Lincoln outbid the man. Walking up to the slave block, he reached up and took the rope that bound her wrist and led her to the edge of the crowd. Stopping, he untied the rope and said to her, you are free to go. The young woman looked at him with complete surprise. What did you say, master? He said to her, you are free to go. I'm free? I can go wherever I want to? Yes, he said, you are free. Do you mean I can think 
like I want to? Yes, you are free. I can say what I want to? Yes, he said. You're free now. You can go wherever you want to go. Her eyes filled with tears as she said, Then, sir, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. You will love as Diamond. There's only one fitting response. Jesus, I want to go with you. Jesus, I want to be with you. Jesus, I want to live my life for you. And that's what the gospel does. It awakens us to the magnitude of God's love and mercy. And it changes us. And guys, that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And when you get that, you know what it's like? It's like finding treasure. And there's nothing more valuable than that. Nothing. There's nothing in this world more precious than that. And when you you find treasure, you know what you have? You have joy. And in joy, you go and sell everything you have to to get it. And that's what we see in our text, right? There's nothing begrudging or obligatory here. There's not a hint of resentment or reluctance in what these men do. No, in joy, in joy they go and sell everything they had to give it all up for what was far better and far superior, of far greater worth than anything they possessed. And Jesus says that's how people act when they get it. That's the natural recourse of a life that's been changed by the gospel. You don't have to twist their arm. You don't have to coerce them. You don't have to try to manipulate them to give up everything for God. No, they do it gladly. They surrender with joy. Why? Because they found in Jesus true treasure. And this is why when John Piper meets someone and they talk about faith, matters of faith, He says, I don't ask them, are you a Christian? He says, I ask them, is Jesus your treasure? That's what I want to ask you in closing. Is Jesus your treasure? Is Jesus your greatest gain? Is he someone, is he someone worth losing everything for? This is where we have to be honestly, brutally honest with ourselves. This requires honest self-reflection. I ask you again, is Jesus your treasure? Is he of far greater worth than anything else in your life? For some of us, the answer to that question is no. some of us are idols in our lives that we have given our hearts to 
that we have given our devotion to. And some of us in this room, we are struggling in our walk with God presently. Some of you listening right now feel incredibly dry. You feel so spiritually dry. And you don't feel much of anything as it relates to God. You're just kind of going through the motions week after week. And it's a struggle for you to pray. It's a struggle for you to read God's word. It's a struggle for you to even come out to church. And if that describes you, I just want to say two things real quick. First, I see you. I know you are not where you want to be. And my guess is that you're probably feeling bad about where you are. And you're probably carrying around a lot of guilt and shame. So the last thing I want to do is heap more. Now, as your pastor loves you, more importantly, God sees you. God loves you right now, right now, right where you are. He loves you in all your badness. He knows what you did last night. He knows what you did this week. He knows it all. And he loves you and accepts you right now. Not because of your performance, but because you are in his son. Because you are clothed in his righteousness. So remind yourself of that today. Remind yourself of that over and over again because it's the loving kindness of God that turns our hearts and leads us to repentance. The second thing I want to say to you is that almost all of our spiritual problems come from a lack of sight, spiritual sight. Did you know that? Almost all of our spiritual problems come from a lack of spiritual sight. Because what we know up here isn't known down here. Because what we know in our minds isn't known, it's not experienced down in our hearts. And that's why what you need more than anything is not more information. What you need is not another sermon. Well, you know what you need more than anything? What you need more than anything is to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened. To see and to know the truth you already have. And only God can do that for you. Only God can grant spiritual sight. And that's what Pastor Ray's been preaching the last two weeks, right? He's been preaching out of Ephesians 1 where Paul, after listing all the blessings, every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ, what does he do? He prays for the Ephesians. Why? Because he knows that God has to reveal it to them. 
He knows that he can't make them see any of what he has laid out for them in the same way. I can't make you see any of what I laid out for you today. The beauty and the power, the wonder of the gospel, only God can do that. So do what Paul did for the Ephesians. Pray. Pray. Pray and ask God to enlighten the eyes of our heart that you would see. That you would see Christ as treasure. And that you would see, that you would know in your heart that he is worth losing everything for. And let's do that now. I just want to invite you to bow your heads right where you are. And let's just go before God in stillness and quietness. Is Jesus your treasure? Maybe at one point he was. Maybe at one point he was everything to you. But man, life happened. Stuff happened and over time you just, you drifted. And now you find your heart loving all kinds of other things and pulled in all kinds of other directions. And in your honesty, you have to say, Jesus is not. He's not the most important thing in my life. We'll just go before God right now and just ask, Lord, show me again. Show me again the beauty of who you are. God, show me again your worth, your value. Show me again because I've lost sight. Ask God and you will do it. Ask God to open and enlighten the eyes of your heart that you might see and behold treasure. God, open the eyes of our hearts. God, I'm asking you right now to enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see and know that you, Jesus, are better than anything on earth. 
God, I pray for those of us in this room that have forgotten that. God, some of us, we have forgotten and forsaken our first love. God, we have drifted so far to where sometimes we can't even recognize who we have become. God, I pray for your mercy and your love to be poured out into their hearts right now. God, would you remind them not of your judgment, not of your condemnation, but of your perfect love and acceptance that you love them right now, right now, in their brokenness, that you love them perfectly right now in their badness, all because of Christ, because he lived the life that they should have lived and died the death that they should have died. God, would you remind them right now of your love and acceptance in your son. And I pray, God, that that would turn our hearts, that that would turn our hearts back to you and that our devotion, our commitment, our allegiance, would be yours again. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. For, thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you, God, for the beauty of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.